How's it going? My name is Thomas. I'm the campus minister here with RUF. Uh, thanks for being here on this uh, nice, crisp fall evening, which kind of makes you want to shotgun like four PSLs and go to a fall party. That's what I'm about this season, sweater weather, enjoying it. Um, but at RUF, we believe that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And at the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And what that means is that God's grace is central in your life. And what we mean by God's grace, we mean, we mean God's kindness, unmerited favor. The Christian life is all about God's unmerited favor towards you. It's not about your goodness. That's never enough. It's about God's goodness to you in Jesus. And this semester in RUF, we've been going through a series called The Storyteller, which is on the parables of Jesus. Jesus, like uh, any teacher, told stories. And these stories uh, were often to show us who he is and what he's doing in the world. Uh, I recently came across a quote from an author I love named Flannery O'Connor. She says, uh, when you can assume that your audience holds the same beliefs you do, you can relax a little and use more normal ways of talking to it. But when you have to assume that your audience doesn't understand you, then you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the hard of hearing you shout, and to the almost blind you draw large and startling figures. To the hard of hearing you shout, to the almost blind you draw large and startling figures. That's often what Jesus does in his parables. He, he's, he's making an image for us that we can see so that we can understand who he is and what he's doing. And tonight we're going to be looking at the parable of the lost sheep. Uh, so I recently heard a story about John Wesley. Um, I don't know if you know who John Wesley is. He's the founder of what has come to be known as uh, both the Wesleyan Church and the uh, Methodist Church. And he was kind of a spiritual giant in the 1700s. Uh, and John Wesley uh, was trained up in the Church of England, uh, and he was sent to be a missionary over in Savannah, Georgia, he and his brother. And they were really intense Christian people. Like they, they took things here. They started a club called the Holy Club. <laughs> it sounds like a club I do not want to be a part of. It sounds like a real bummer, actually. But they were very intense. They wanted to go and they wanted to share the gospel with people in the United States, specifically with poor people and with the Native American population. And actually, it didn't end up going super well. But on the way over, uh, they were, it's a five month journey from England over to, at that point, Georgia. It was five, a five-month journey, and somewhere along the way, uh, the seas got really rough, and John and his brother started to think, we're going to die, and people were bringing their children to them to be baptized because they thought that they were all going to sink in the ship, but then while all of this is going on, there's a group of German people who are on this same ship, and there are German people who are Moravians, which is a sort of kind of a a simple kind of like pietistic Christian um, denomination. And this group of Moravians, as everything's going crazy, as waves are kind of capsizing over the side, are holding a worship service. Here's an excerpt from Wesley's journal that kind of describes what he saw. He said, in the midst of the psalm, wherewith their service began, wherewith, that's how you know it's legit, uh, the sea broke over, split the mainsail in pieces, covered the ship and poured in between the decks as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. A terrible screaming began among the English. The Germans, that is the Moravians, calmly sung on. I asked one of them afterward, 
Were you not afraid? He answered, I thank God, no. I asked, but were not your women and children afraid? He replied mildly, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. See, in these simple Christian people, John Wesley found a joy and a trust that even like the super Christian missionary that he was, he he couldn't touch. It was astounding to him because frankly, he was terrified of dying. And this image of these people calmly worshiping, joyfully worshiping, joyfully almost facing death stuck with him for years. I wonder, have you ever encountered someone with that sort of joy? That sort of joy that, that just they know that things are going to be okay when they're not. And I'm not saying just like kind of a vague sense of, you know, everything's going to work out. Um, you know, let's just be positive. I'm not saying that. There, there's a difference between that and someone who really has known pain and suffering, but they can say, I'm confident that all will be well. Has anyone known that sort of person? It sticks with you. And where are you at with that? Where are you at with this, this sense of joy, the sense of, of, of fulfillment, of being certain that all will be well? Some of us uh, may have been around Christianity for a while. Uh, we may have experienced this joy at one point, but if we're honest, it's not our current experience. Others of us, uh, maybe we're right in the middle of it. Maybe we're feeling really excited about our Christian faith. Maybe we're feeling certain. Even in a time like this, where a lot of stuff has been taken away from us, maybe you are confident right now that God is for you, and you have joy. And others of us have never felt anything close to this. And maybe we're we're here because we're curious. Is this sort of joy possible? But I think what we all have in common is that all of us want joy. All of us want to be the type of people that when stuff hits the fan, that we can know that all will be well. And this parable is about joy, and it's about how we find it. So as we look at this today, we're going to be asking this question, how can we find joy? How can we find joy? I have two answers. The first is we we admit we're lost, and the second, we, well, we be found. We be found. I sound like a pirate when I say that. We admit we're lost, be found. I didn't think that through. Let me pray for us real quick and go ahead and get started. Father, uh, we do thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for the fact that you speak and that you give us, um, yeah, you give us instruction on on how life should be. Lord, you speak uh, in ways that are startling and shocking to us sometimes. But Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see you as you are. Um, Lord, that we would come away from this uh, convinced that you love us. Always things asked in Jesus' name. Amen. So how can we find joy? First off, we admit that we're lost. All right, so the setting of this parable we see is in verses 1 and 2. And we're going to see some kind of familiar characters, if you've been with us this semester, that we've talked about before says in verse 1 that tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him, him being Jesus. Uh, and tax collectors and sinners would have been the bad people. Tax collectors would have been uh, employed by the Roman government to basically steal from all of their fellow countrymen. They would have uh, kind of skimmed stuff off the top to line their own pockets. They would have been hated. 
Zacchaeus, you remember the story of Zacchaeus? He was a tax collector. Whenever Jesus came close to him, all the people rolled their eyes. They were not loved people. And sinners, sinners just refers to someone who, who has missed the mark. Someone who is going away from God's way of doing things. Someone who has decided to do whatever they want. So the tax collectors and sinners. When we, when, when we see sinners like this, a lot of us tend to think of like, you know, I'm a sinner saved by grace. But that's not actually what this is. This is referring to, it's kind of a technical term that people at that time, when you said sinner, they would have known who you were talking about. It would have been the people who just kind of do whatever they want. The tax collectors and sinners. So these are the, the bad people, but they're drawing near to Jesus. And then we see some other familiar people, the Pharisees and the scribes. It says in verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And for us, a lot of times when we hear Pharisees and scribes, we can kind of roll our eyes because we're like, oh, these religious people who are just so obsessed with themselves, they're self-righteous, they're awful. And the reason we think that is because of how Jesus responded to them in the Gospels. But for the people, the original audience of this, Pharisees and scribes would have been the good guys. They would have been the people that they would have wanted to be like. They're the upstanding people that you want them at your party. And the Pharisees and the scribes, when they see that all these bad people are coming near to Jesus, they grumble. They say, ugh, this man receives sinners and eats with them. You see, what Jesus was doing, uh, allowing these people to draw near to them, it would have made him technically unclean in their eyes. They, they, they had this view that these people, the tax collectors and sinners, their morality was like kind of contagious. So if you spent time with them, that you would become like them. So Jesus was do, committing uh, kind of a no-no in their eyes. So how does Jesus respond? Uh, you shouldn't be surprised by this point. He tells a story. And we see the story in verses four through six. So just kind of overview of it. It's a story of a man with a flock of sheep. He has a hundred sheep, and then he loses one. And then we see that he goes after the one that he's lost. He leaves the rest of the flock. And then when he finds it, he rejoices. Not only does he rejoice, he, he goes home and he throws a party and invites all of his friends to rejoice with him. And this is just like kind of a short story that the original audience would have been like, yeah, of course, if you lost the sheep, you're going to go find it. And so the people who heard this first are like, Jesus, why are you telling this story? Why are you telling a story of a sheep going away? Like, of course, if you lose a sheep, you're going to go after it. And of course, you're going to be happy when you get it back. In an agricultural society, this would have been a big deal to find something like this that was lost. But then we kind of hit the kicker in verse 7, where Jesus kind of lets them in a little bit on why he's telling them this story. He says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So in telling this story, Jesus is, is kind of, he is exposing the hearts of the Pharisees and the scribes. He is uh, not just telling them a story about a man who lost a sheep. He's actually telling them something about who he is and what he's doing in the world. In no uncertain terms, Jesus is saying to them, I am this shepherd who is going after the lost sheep. And when I bring the lost sheep back, there's going to be a party. 
And in fact, in verse 7, he says that there is joy in heaven over what he's doing. He's saying right now there is actually a party in heaven because all these tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to me. And he just, he shows that to the Pharisees. It's as if he's saying to them, what does the fact that heaven is rejoicing right now and you're grumbling, what does that say about you? What does it say about you that you're responding in a different way than the people who are in the very presence of God? This would have been deeply offensive to these people. The Pharisees, right, they're like the God squad. Like, only listen to Caleb. Like, they, they would have been very, very mad when Jesus says something like this. Because Jesus is saying to them, you, the people who are most concerned with heaven, you're actually living as if you're in hell. You're living as if you're in hell. There's no joy When these lost people come near to me, you get angry. What does that say about you? And and this thing that Jesus says here, some people say Jesus is never sarcastic. They're wrong. Jesus is being very sarcastic right here. In this last bit, he says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. If you know the Bible well, you know that 99 righteous persons who need no repentance do not exist. There's no such thing as a righteous person who does not need repentance. All have sinned. What Jesus is doing here is he's exposing the Pharisees and saying, you think that you need no repentance. Therefore, your life is completely and totally devoid of joy. He's exposing them. So the first step to finding joy here, we must admit that we're lost. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's trying to get these Pharisees to admit that they're lost. And this would be hard for them to hear. And in fact, it's hard for us to do. Nobody likes to admit that they're lost, right? There's the stereotype that like, man never wants to ask for directions. Uh, It holds up, that's definitely me. If I'm in the store and somebody like comes up to me like, "Uh, sir, can I help you find anything? I'm like, no, I'll be fine. And then I just anxiously walk around the store for 20 minutes to try to find it. When I could have just asked them, but I don't do it, right? What keeps us from admitting we're lost? What keeps us from the joy of heaven? And I think for many of us, we can be like the Pharisees and scribes in that it's our goodness which keeps us from admitting we're lost. It's our goodness. Some of us, are like our lives are so put together that this language of Jesus as our savior, it doesn't resonate doesn't resonate because we don't feel like we need saving. Frankly, I I don't need saving, but I would take a couple extra hours in the day to be able to handle my business. We don't think we need saving. And we know that admitting we're lost, it means throwing out the playbook completely. It means starting from scratch. And for the Pharisees, this would have been really hard to do because they knew exactly what they were doing. They had a plan for life. They had a plan to how to get to the things that they wanted to get. They didn't want to admit that we're lost, and sometimes neither do we. So our goodness can keep us from admitting we're lost. But also, I think, and maybe more relevant to us where we're at, our busyness can keep us from admitting that we're lost. If you're anything like me, um, my life can feel so full sometimes 
that I don't have the capacity to slow down and reflect on how things are going here. Like I don't have the capacity to sit and pay attention to what how I'm feeling. I don't have the capacity um, to really evaluate like, hey, uh, is what I'm doing sustainable right now? And if we if we constantly are finding ourselves in this place, the idea of just admitting that we're lost, that we're not doing okay is really scary because we can't find the time to slow down. We know that admitting we're lost, that I don't know what I'm doing, God, that that means that we have to start over. That means that we put ourselves out of the driver's seat. We have to start over from scratch. And I think that we're prone to think in our busyness that when we feel lost, when we feel a lack of joy, that really the thing that we need is just to try harder. Or maybe it's to uh, commit to a better self-care routine. Or maybe it's to uh, start a new Bible reading plan. Or to pray more fervently. But the reality is we need to admit that we're lost. We need to admit that we're lost. I think fundamentally the reason that we don't want to admit that we're lost is our desire for control. Because ultimately, we know it's a vulnerable thing to say, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this hole. I'm completely dependent on someone pulling me out of this. But that's the posture that we see here. That's the first step to joy. What's the second step? The second step to joy is being found. Being found. You notice I said that very carefully. Being found. It is not finding being found. I think we see this throughout the parable. Jesus shows us a couple things here. I think the first thing he shows us just in this parable is our utter helplessness before him. Uh, Jesus describes us as sheep, uh, despite the fact that they have that really cool fact about them. What is it, the 300 radial yards? That's pretty amazing. Other than that, sheep are like really dumb, really dumb. And honestly, they're one of the most common kind of like metaphors for how we relate to God is sheep and shepherd. It seems like there's something that God is after by constantly beating that drum. It's like, hey, you guys are sheep. You're the sheep of my pasture. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. The most famous psalm in the entire Bible, the Lord is my shepherd. That's beautiful, but it implies that you are a dumb sheep. This is a thing over and over again. See, Jesus wants us to see that we are helpless here. Uh, And I've actually looked this up. Like, if if a sheep is gone like this, like the reason why there's so much rejoicing is because if a sheep is gone, it is dead. It's dead. Some sheep, like some specific types, if they fall over, they will die on their back because they just can't get up. Like, or sometimes they, they will, if they get lost and go out into the wilderness, they have so much like wool that they just, it gets way too big and they can't move anymore and they die. Like that is the level of helplessness that we have before God. And we need to acknowledge this if we ever want to find joy. So Jesus wants us to see our helplessness, but I think he also wants us to see what his mission is. What's the whole point of why he came We see later in Luke 19, Jesus says, the son of man, that is him, that's a name that he used to refer to himself, came to seek and to save the lost. 
The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We see this in our, in our passage here. We see the, the shepherd goes out into the open country and goes after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder rejoicing. Friends, that's what Jesus came to do. He came to find you. He didn't come to pat you on the back for your moral efforts. He didn't come to teach you a better self-care routine, as important as that might be. Jesus came to find you and save you. It's as if he's uh, like Liam Neeson, right? He has a very particular set of skills. He will find you and he will save you. That's what Jesus came to. But do we relate to Jesus like this? I know often we relate to Jesus a little bit more uh, as if he is, I don't know, just kind of like someone watching over our shoulder, making sure that we're doing everything right. We relate to Jesus maybe as um, kind of like a little bit of a kind of shameful parent and less as a savior. See, we, we, we think that we have to clean ourselves up to come to Jesus often. But what we see here is that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. A commentator on this passage uh, named Robert Farrar Capone says, Jesus finds us in the desert of death, not in the garden of improvement. And in the power of Jesus' resurrection, he puts us on his shoulders, rejoicing and brings us home. He finds us in the desert of death. He finds us when we're lost. So that's the mission of Jesus. But we also see the joy of Jesus in this. Uh, in verses six and, or 5, 6, and 7, you see rejoice a couple times. You see this word for joy again and again. Uh, Jesus rejoices when he finds us, calls his friends together to rejoice with him. And then we see in verse 7, the scene of heaven, that there is joy in heaven when a sinner repents, when a sinner turns away from sin and towards Jesus. Friends, Jesus delights in bringing you home. He delights in finding the lost. I know, I think we, we tend to think that whenever we're lost, that it's, it's like an annoyance for God to go find us. But that's the very point of Jesus' ministry. He came to find. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. And Jesus had joy in finding you. In Hebrews 12, we see that uh, we're encouraged to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy that was set before Jesus? It was having us. You are the joy that was set before Jesus. You are why he endured the cross. So how can we find joy? To find joy, we must be found. We must be found. And why is this hard for us? Why is it hard that we need to be found in order to find joy? I think for some of us, uh, this is hard because we can't imagine that there's someone out there looking for us. Can't imagine that. Uh, if you're anything like me, I, I'm used to existing in a space where I have to perform in order to be discovered, right? You have to work really hard to get a leg up to demonstrate that you're extraordinary and then you're discovered. But what we see here is not discovery. We see Jesus 
binding us. Jesus' kingdom is not like that. Jesus moves toward the lost. It's not as if we're, you know, kind of like in the middle of the desert and we're shooting up a flare. Jesus flies over in a helicopter and comes finds us. It's as if we're, we're dead in the desert, buried under 50 feet of sand. Jesus brings an excavator, grabs us out, breathes life into us. That's what he does. See, if, if you want to be found, it, it comes from Jesus. It doesn't come from your ability to even reach out to him. Jesus is the one who finds. And I think this is also hard for us because being found, it's not something that we have control over. Right? We can't put ourselves in a good position in order to be found. It would be much easier if we could just kind of had, here's five steps to having a joyful life. Or do this Bible reading plan and you're just going to be more joyful. You see, but in, in Jesus' kingdom, joy finds you. When we admit that we're lost, joy finds us. It's because Jesus is looking for us. You see, in Jesus' kingdom, we don't work our way up to heaven. Heaven comes down to us. Uh, so in conclusion, just kind of want to read the lyrics of a song that I recently came across. How many of you have seen Dear Evan Hansen? Anyone? A couple people. All right. Full disclosure, I haven't seen it, but I have a lot of friends who have. And the song, You Will Be Found, uh, it's a beautiful song. And I was just thinking about it this week as I was thinking about this passage. I just want to read some of the lyrics for you. It says, have you ever felt like nobody was there? Have you ever felt forgotten in the middle of nowhere? Have you ever felt like you could disappear? Like you could fall and no one would hear? Well, let that lonely feeling wash away. Maybe there's a reason to believe you'll be okay. Because when you don't feel strong enough to stand, you can reach, reach out your hand. And oh, someone will come running, and I know they'll take you home. Even when the dark comes crashing through, when you need a friend to carry you, and when you're broken on the ground, you will be found. So let the sun come streaming in, because you'll reach up and you'll rise again. Lift your head and look around. You will be found. I mean, that's like a tearjerker of a song. It's beautiful, right? The longing of that. Like anyone who hears that, I mean, it's like, it's so beautiful. We all want to believe this. We want to believe that there's someone out there who will find us. That there's someone out there looking for us. We want to move from loneliness into joy, and this song encourages us to reach out in the midst of our pain and a friend will carry us. It's beautiful, but you may be wondering, how can I know that that's going to happen? How do I know if I reach out that a friend will carry me? Friends, I want to say that Jesus is that friend and more. He is that friend and more. Jesus will carry you, but not only if you reach out. Jesus is the one who reaches out to you. The ability or, or your, your security in that you're going to be found does not come from your ability to reach out to Jesus or even your ability to recognize how lost you are. That all of that is a gift. All of that comes from Jesus. You see, Jesus is the friend who comes to us even when, as the song says, that lonely feeling won't wash away. Jesus is the friend who reaches out to us and raises us up with him 
You see, our confidence isn't, as the song says, that we'll reach up and we'll rise again. It's actually that Jesus reaches down to us and will rise again with him. See, you can know that the longing in this song, the longing to be found, is yours. Not because you're putting yourself in a good position to be found, but because of Jesus who loves to rescue the lost. When we begin to understand how Jesus' kingdom works in this way, we can find joy. Joy comes to the lost who are found. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, that this is true, Lord, that um, joy comes to the lost. Uh, In a lot of ways, this is too, for some of us, I mean, it just might feel too fantastic to even be true. Um, But Lord, I pray that you would help us to, um, to see you clearly. I pray um, for some of us here, we might be just kind of dancing around admitting, maybe even for the first time, uh, that we're lost and that we need you to find us. I know that's such a scary feeling. But Lord, I I pray um, that you would um, just reveal yourself to us, that we all may have confidence that we will be found in you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as is 